0: to the RTI time machine. Today's time traveler is John Van Triest and the destination Danshui, 1886. Danshui is a place of boardwalk entertainments and trendy eateries to the north of Taipei, where the Danshui River meets the sea. It's a historic place, with sites including a 17th-century fort occupied by the Spanish, then the Dutch. But there's another fort here, less well-known, up on an out-of-the-way hilltop. It, too, is a foreign design, but the soldiers who were stationed here were not foreign. It was, in fact, a foreign invasion they hoped to head off. These were soldiers of Imperial China, and their brief time here, during the 1880s and 1890s, is remembered as a time when one government official tried to save Taiwan from what turned out to be inevitable. The solid masonry and brickwork here still stands, but that's about it, the rest having decayed away many years ago. That's why it's fortunate we've met up today with Ms. Chen, a volunteer guide here at the century-old Hobei Fort, whose job it is to fill in the holes in the fort's story. <laughs> We walk in through the front gate, several meters thick. It's passage like a tunnel. As your eyes adjust to the light, you'll find yourself in a broad courtyard, strewn about with pebbles, thick with dandelions and clovers, and surrounded on all sides by thick walls. A structure, some say quarters of some kind, once stood in this courtyard. But all you can see now is the rubble of the foundation. Filled with soldiers in its day, though, this place would have been impressive. The fort was designed by German Lieutenant Max E. Hecht and built with a mix of materials from Britain, mainland China, and the mountains just across the river. This eclectic mix atop a hill in Danshui seems a bit odd, especially given how much it would have cost to build and the chilled-out personality of Danshui today. A place known for its giant ice cream cones and seaside caricatures hardly seems the kind of place you need something like this. But Danshui in the 1880s was a different kind of place—a port open to foreign trade and a town where global tensions could reach. It was an anxious time for officialdom in Taiwan. You can see it in the size of the artillery guns they ordered for the turrets here. Though Ms. Chen is only able to show us pictures, few originals survive in this part of the world, you can still get the idea. And these officials had plenty of reasons to be worried. For a time, Taiwan had been seen as a sort of shield, its high mountains off the coast protecting imperial China's heartland from foreigners. But in the 19th century, Taiwan became itself a target for foreign aggression. In 1874, Rapidly modernizing Japan had sent an expeditionary force to Taiwan to punish an indigenous group for the killing of some shipwrecked sailors it claimed as subjects. The state of Taiwan's defenses and the fact that the Empire didn't really control the whole island were both showing. More alarming for the Danshui area was the next attempt at a foreign landing, this time by French forces as part of a conflict over far-off Vietnam. Maps inside one of the fort's bare and echoey chambers show how close to this spot they landed in 1884. The French landing failed, but anxiety over Taiwan's defenses rose, and it was clear something had to be done. Under mounting foreign pressure, Taiwan was declared an imperial province, and its first governor, Liu Mingchuan, went into action. Taiwan, he decided, would have to strengthen itself, and modernization would be key. Taiwan's first railway line was built on his watch, and undersea cables laid down during his tenure linked Taiwan with the outside world. And then there was the military side of this self-strengthening. Critical points along the coast, points like this one, were to be fortified using the latest foreign methods. Work on the fort began in 1886, just a year after French ships lifted a blockade on Dan Shui's port. The results taking shape here on this hilltop were impressive for their time. You can see that its stone walls were several meters thick and coated on the outside with an expensive layer of cement. Off from the central courtyard on every side, there are arched chambers made with thick, expensive masonry, barracks of soldiers, and stores for gunpowder ready to fire the fort's artillery. And then, of course, there were the artillery guns themselves. We've already talked about how big they were, but they were also huge improvements over traditional cannons here, and these Armstrongs and Krupp's came with a brand name recognition that brought respect in the 19th century. You can reach the turrets where they once stood from the central courtyard, climbing up unsteadily through steep tunnels until you're on top of the fort above the walls. Up on one of the now-empty turrets, there was even a box that Ms Chen says used to contain a telegraph machine. In other words, when this fort was finished in 1889, this was the final word in modernity. Best of all, the next enemy who came to Dan Shui, thinking it poorly defended, wouldn't even be able to see an attack from the fort coming. That's because it's completely hidden from outside view, tucked away behind high earthworks covered in trees. Ms. Chen points out the crumbling remains of a lookout on one side of the earthworks. She says a signaler could have climbed up here and used flags to silently help the gunners lock on to their unseen targets. This was the kind of structure the governor might proudly call the key to northern Taiwan. Maybe that's the idea he had in mind when he ordered the words key and lock to the north gate inscribed above the fort's entrance. The fort was also a fitting final project for its German engineer, who would soon be buried in Dan Shui's foreign cemetery. Going in, we knew that Ms. Chen was an expert at filling in holes in the fort's story. But we didn't realize that many of these holes are literal, all that's now left in these bare rooms to hint at what was once here. In the barracks, for example, there's an empty niche in the wall where Ms. Chen says an altar to the god of war would have once sat. Later, climbing back up to the turrets, we can see that the inside is indented with holes shaped like giant bullets. These holes, Ms. Chen says, would have been for keeping spare gunpowder on hand, just in case. She then invites me to try and squeeze inside one. It's just big enough. The strange entrance to one room is another example of the way you have to use clues in this fort to figure out what things were used for. The only way in or out is through two brick walls, broken up in places by arched entrances. But you can't enter or leave in a straight line. The entrances in the two brick walls don't line up. This is deliberate, Miss Chen says. We're standing in what was once a gunpowder store and the misalignment was meant to help contain any explosion. For a few years, soldiers and officials waited for any sign of an attack. They may even have been confident. But in Shui, at least, the attack never came. Looking around at the fort's surroundings, though, we can see what did come instead. On one side is a lovely wooded green, looking oddly manicured for such an out-of-the-way place. On the other side is a martyr shrine, remembering those who made important contributions to the Republic of China. Ms. Chen says the wooded green to one side of us is a golf course, Taiwan's oldest, founded in 1919 and long a place where few Taiwanese could afford to come. As for the shrine on the other side, well, it's been repurposed. Originally, it was a Japanese Shinto shrine. What had happened was that Japanese forces had returned to Taiwan. A war on the Asian mainland led Imperial China to sign away Taiwan to Japanese rule. That was in 1895, just a few years after the fort was finished. When the landing came, it took place not here at Danshui, but in the port city of Keelung, down the road from here. And while there was Taiwanese resistance to this new arrangement, not a shot was ever fired from the fort here on this hilltop. In the end, it turned out, this fort had not been the key to the north after all. In later years, most people who saw the fort probably did so from the golf course. With the fort now a historic site though, people can come here and rediscover a special point in Taiwan's history a time when the island's leaders decided to embrace new technology from abroad in an effort to keep the old imperial rule intact. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time.